This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And this week, ladies and gentlemen, both Sam and I are on our new computers. So hopefully, in terms of the audio production elements here, it's going to be flawless. I was very happy last week. I thought that your new computer did yeoman's work there. There, there were no chipmunk moments. It no was chipmunks. Awesome. I didn't hear any dropouts. We didn't hear, you know, we were blaming all that stuff on the network and everything. <laughs> yeah, we were just, we were trying to figure out why it was that you kept having trouble when we connect up to record and all we had to do was get you a new computer. So I'm hoping that mine does as well. I was convinced that my office was just the vortex. The haunted like, office, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah something. Yeah. There's something going on there. But no, it's, uh, you know, I, and I know this isn't a computer show, but I would just, I would just say that these new MacBooks are very impressive. These new, we, uh, we each have, uh, new Macs that are using these Apple silicon chips rather than the Intel chips. And, uh, boy, they are, they are slick and fast. Uh, I, the only problem I'm having with mine really at all is the fact that the screen, despite being about the same size, it's a 16-inch screen on mine, and my old one was a 15.6. The resolution of the screen, the number of pixels, dots on it, are is much higher. It's a much higher resolution screen. And it's a much more powerful computer, so it can manage that without any problem. But the relative size of text on my screen is small. And when I get within an application, I can typically, you know, most programs, you can set the font size and make things bigger. And I, I, I do that. But when I'm working with the computer itself at the operating system level, I've already chosen the biggest font <laughs> that it will let me choose. And I still find myself squinting. So I'm having to face the reality that at some point, I'm going to have to have glasses that magnify things if I'm going to be able to still read computer screens. But. <laughs> You'll be on your uh, your computer with like a gemologist magnifying helmet yes, on. Yes, <laughs> I will. You know, hey, getting old is not for the faint of heart. Uh, I'm I'm learning more and more about the limitations of sight and sound all the time. Which is actually, see, there's a foreshadowing of today's passage because it's hey, going to tell go. us it's going to tell us that this righteous king will not. Uh, he's not going to judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes for what his ears hear. I'm like, see. He, we don't have to worry about him getting old because when he gets when, when I get old, I can't see and hear well anymore. So you know, <laughs> this guy's going to have it down. So we are going to be coming to Isaiah chapter 11 this week to the first 10 verses of chapter 11. Um, and Sam, when I was just to give people kind of an overview of this, when I was looking at this and setting up the study notes this week, um, I was really struck by the sort of utopian existence mm-hmm. that this was describing. Um, can you give people as uh, before we kind of go verse by verse, give people kind of the big picture of what Isaiah is describing to us here? Isaiah has has come in and the first thirty nine chapters with with brief exceptions like chapter eleven, 
it's all judgment, and it's pointing to the dysfunction of all the nations. You know, mm-hmm. Israel has fallen, and Judah has fallen, and all the countries around them are fallen, and there's constant warfare and injustice. And no matter what system the people are under, they exploit one another, they're cruel to one another. The world just feels heavy and broken. And he lays down this prophecy in chapter 10, and it ends with it saying, he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and the Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And and so, what it's saying is God is going to come down, and he is going to bring about a judgment upon Israel and Judah, um, you know, which traditionally, these have been the people of God, but they had walked away. They're, they they Basically, it's revealing humanity can't save itself. Mm-hmm. In and of ourselves, we just do not pursue righteousness. Right. And so God's judgment is going to come, and it's going to level the forest. But then chapter 11 starts by saying there's going to be a sprout of life that comes out of that devastation that will come and bring about the kingdom that every human heart is ultimately longing for. It's a world without conflict. It's a world where justice reigns. It's a world of peace. It's a world, you know, where you don't just sit around and and despair of the the world. It it gives us just this powerful picture of a world that we all want to live in. Yeah. And there is a, a sense in the ancient world where when you would be invaded and conquered or when your nation was being judged, whether that was by your gods or your neighbors or whoever it was, there's this imagery of having trees cut down, you know, they cut down the trees. Uh, and I think that some of that has to do with – I mean, if you've ever been around um, – a wooded area where they've come in and and cleared out a bunch of trees for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, whether it's maybe the trees are diseased or there's been a fire and they cut down the burned out trees or whatever. But that is such a stark thing. Like when I drive through mm-hmm. an area that's heavily wooded and I come back through and they've cut out a bunch of these trees, it looks horrific because you're, yeah. you're used to seeing all of these mighty trees and all this green and it's gone. And, and really, that's, I think, the idea of this judgment, which is all of mm-hmm. what you've built up here through your wickedness, through your unrighteousness, all of that is going to be cut down and you know, you're going to be standing around looking at this empty space saying, what happened? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's going to be a, a place that looks desolate. I mean, yeah. there's a reason why in the ancient world, when you would conquer an enemy city, they would go out and salt the fields. They would literally take salt and cast it all around the fields. And the reason for that, and all of humanity's kindness, um, they would go out and do that because it would prevent the ground from being fertile for quite a long time. And they would never be able to grow. And so basically, you've killed that city. No one will want to live there because they won't be able to get food. And so it's like you're saying, when when you see, you know, what once looked full of life and trees and abundance and beauty, and now it's just flat and desolate, it looks judged. It looks yeah. horrific. It does. And that's what God is describing. But out of that is going to come this little shoot, yeah. and that's going to bring forth all the life and beauty of what he describes today. So Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verse 1 reads, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
Um, I think it's interesting here that it says the stump of Jesse and it doesn't mm-hmm. talk about David. I would have, yeah. I would have expected it to talk about David. Do you have any thoughts right. as to why he says from the stump of Jesse? Yeah, you you brought this out in in the personal worship notes, and this is what I had written to Tom before I read those. I think it's it's absolutely right. Jesse, for those of you who don't know who Jesse is, Jesse's the father of David, and so if you go back into the Old Testament. You had judges. You didn't have a kingdom. And then finally the people demand a king and God gives them King Saul and he's a mess. But then they get King David. And King David is going to be the first king from the line of Judah, which was you know prophesied way back in Genesis that this was going to be the kingly line. Judah would be. And so Jesse's son, David, comes forth and he's the first king from the line of Judah. And so you'll see in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. He refers to himself as the son of David. And everybody expected the messianic king, the savior of the world, to come through the lineage of David. And so like you said, everything is about David. But in Isaiah, he's like the stump of Jesse. And it's like you're imagining this tree that has been cut down, and he's cutting down all of those wicked generations, but he's even cut down the tree beyond David, who's right. all the way back to Jesse, and it's like he is starting from scratch. And even though he will be from the line of David, his kingdom will be created all new. It's right. not going to be just a continuation of David's kingdom. It's going to be an entirely new kingdom. Yeah. Um, I th- that's I think, where I went with it. Yeah, I think it is uh, probably a reference to just exactly how far from the, the righteous king the line of David had become. Uh, the you know when we were studying the kings and we were talking about the fact that there were you know twenty kings or whatever I forget how many kings we studied but but it was like they were they were like o for twenty you know in the in the northern <laughs> kingdom and in the southern kingdom they might have had two or three or four good kings out of that group and um, it, it just one wicked king after another in Israel mm-hmm. and all and these kings were largely uh, descended from the line of David. So it's uh you know I think that I think Isaiah and the Lord speaking through Isaiah was making a point here saying that um you know if you thought that David was safe no not even David's line is safe it's like mm-hmm. this is going to be something that's better that's greater um and I think we we'll, when we get to the end of this passage uh you know we're going to see some connections between this all the way back to Genesis 3 Mm-hmm. Um, where God is is saying that this is so this and, you know when we talk about the now and the not yet and we're talking about what sort of time frame we're we're looking at here as I look at this I think this is really talking you know, pretty much exclusively about it, it does mention the first coming of the Messiah and this idea of the shoot that comes out of Jesse but the resulting kingdom here I think is something that happens after the second coming of the Messiah mm-hmm. yeah I totally agree with that yeah. if not. <laughs> If this is it, then then we're in trouble. Then, then we've missed something um, somewhere, yeah. 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 Um, but there's something else. I remember Dr. Gage talking about this. So Isaiah's looking forward and he sees judgment coming, that even, even Jerusalem itself is going to be you know leveled. And that comes with the Babylonians mm-hmm. where they come and they destroy Jerusalem and they take all the people down to exile. And one of the things that Dr. Gage taught, and I'm paraphrasing him, so give him mercy for how I miscommunicate what he said. (laughs) Um, But he says, like, when the Babylonians take the the Jews into exile, when they come and destroy Jerusalem and lead them off into exile, God is kind of unpeeling 
1,400 years of redemptive history in a moment. And, and I was, you know, when he talked about that, he says, so for starters, the Babylonians come and they destroy Jerusalem and they destroy the temple. This is the great work of Solomon, you know, and you can just follow the timeline backwards. So they've destroyed the temple of Solomon and then they destroy Jerusalem, the great city of David, and you go backwards and Joshua, who led them in the promised land by bringing them across the Jordan, here this tyrant Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian is leading them out of the promised land through the Jordan. You have Moses, who's the one who delivered them from the great slavery. They're now being led back into slavery. You had Abraham, who was led first from Babylon through Assyria and then down into the promised land. And here God has sent two waves, one from Assyria and the other from Babylon, and now all of the, the people are going back to Abraham's homeland, which is where this whole story started, where God called Abraham and promised him a nation. And it's like God's holiness in a moment unravels 1,400 years. So when it talks about this being this, – this judgment <laughs> reducing Israel to stumps, you know, he doesn't just stop with Jesse. He unravels – all of that history, and he is going to rebuild it greater than ever mm. in the person of Jesus. Yeah. So verse 2 tells us something about this, this shoot that's coming up from the root of Jesse. Verse 2 says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and gives us then after that three pairs of things, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Um when I was looking at that, what I saw was, it, first of all, I think all of these are about the preparation to be a leader or a ruler. All of these things are what are – this is what is necessary for somebody to be a godly ruler or a godly leader. Um, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, I mean, that's talking about himself. You know, it's like what's what he is. He's wise and he's understanding. He's able to see the truth. He's able to discern things with his with his understanding. Counsel and might, he can make good decisions and he carries them out with power. Um, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord that that everything is done with this un, with this connection to to the Lord, it's like he has the fear of the Lord himself, but he also has knowledge of the Lord. It's like he knows what God wants done, and he carries that out. All of these things describing what is the ultimate ruler. And is mm -hmm. I looked at that, I thought every human leader that I could name, no matter how good we say they are, pick your greatest president in American history, whatever. If you're an Abraham Lincoln guy, fine. Teddy Roosevelt, whatever. Everybody's got somebody they think is the greatest president and hold him up against this. And you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wah, wah. only Jesus <laughs> is going to be able to, to fulfill all of these things. Mm-hmm. And even the way that it introduces I, – I love this – but even the way that it introduces him in, in verse 2 where it says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that language is familiar before this in the Old Testament but something significantly different. Like if you go through uh, like the judges, we did a series on the judges, uh -huh. it will say you know, about Othniel, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he did something great. He conquered a city or or – uh, Jephthah, the spirit of the Lord came upon him, or Samson when he defeats the Philistines, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Um, but all of these people, the spirit of the Lord 
comes upon them for this moment, mm. you know, and empowers them to have this triumphant moment because we can look at our leaders, the best of them, and they have really wonderful moments. You know, right, you can look right, at yeah. – but then they always have the wah, wah, yeah. wah moment yeah. where they fall or they, they they mess up and they become these you know figures where they have an asterisk next to their name. Yeah, he was really good and he did great things, but he also dot, dot, dot. Right. But this is different. It doesn't say the spirit of the Lord shall come upon him. It says the spirit of the Lord shall rest. And the literal word there comes from Noah rest upon him it's it's going to stay it's going the spirit of the lord is going to abide with him so he doesn't have fleeting moments of power he doesn't have fleeting moments of brilliance he doesn't have fleeting moments of victory no 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 the spirit of the lord is going to stay with this guy yeah. he is going to be altogether different it's not fleeting it's permanent mm. that is uh yeah the spirit of the lord is going to make himself at home here yeah, this is this mm-hmm. is Will be That's where a good way stay. to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, verses three and four, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or die, decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Um, I'm going to pick a nit with the ESV if I can for a minute. <laughs> Well, the 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 way that and verse, we're back, yeah, we're back. The way that verse three opens up, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. If I just t- if I just read that to you and said, folks, what do you think that means? I think that you would say, and rightly so, that this is talking about somebody who is delighted by their that they delight in fearing the Lord. It's like I'm going to try to fear the Lord, and fear the Lord is a phrase. It's one of those kind of religiosity phrases here. The fear of the Lord just talks about a reverential awe, like you you comprehend who he is, and it is so staggering and overwhelming that you stand there with your eyes open and your mouth open, you know, and you're just like, the, the English have a term, gobsmacked, you know, you're, you're just standing there like, oh, you know, and that's the fear of the Lord. It's just the, the fear of the Lord does not mean you're afraid of the Lord. It means that you are in awe of Him to the point that it, that you look like you're that you're paralyzed with fear, but it's with reverential awe. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 the and we t- we're told in verse two that this this shoot uh, that's you know this person here, this Messiah, we know who it's going to be, is that they themselves have the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, so they do fear the Lord. Mm-hmm. But then verse three. When he says his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, it makes it sound like he's happy about fearing the Lord. And that's actually not what it means. The word delight there means smell, but with a positive, it's like the fragrant aroma. It, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a good smell. It's an enjoyable thing. And what this verse is communicating is that this person is delighted when those around him, when his subjects also fear the Lord. He fears the Lord himself. Verse 2 tells us that. But more than that, he inspires the fear of the Lord in his subjects. And when that happens, it is a fragrant aroma to him. He is delighted by that, is what this verse is trying to say. And I don't Mm -hmm. think that comes through with, and his delight shall be. So. Yeah, and th- I love there's – there's so much. We might have to park here for a little while. Okay. Because <laughs> there's so much here. Um, 
But I love one of the things that it's doing when it when it talks about how this Messiah comes and he has the spirit of the fear of the Lord and his delight, like what he finds to be such a pleasing aroma is that there's others who fear the Lord. Well, why is that? If you jump back into Isaiah, one of the things that you'll find repeated again and again and again is that all those in authority are abusing those who have no power. Mm. They're exploiting those that are poor, and you'll see that come later. With righteousness, he shall judge the poor. Um, you know, he, that's the concern of Isaiah: is it's people who have that are just trampling over those that can't fend themselves. They're neglecting the needs of those that are starving, and you know all of those things. And this says the leader comes with the fear of the Lord. And the idea behind that, why it starts there and describing this king is if you say, you know, and when, again, the fear is this reverential awe, your, your eyes are on God and you see him for everything he is. Like you get a glimpse of how awesome and good and kind and merciful and holy he is. And all of a sudden, he becomes your treasure. The Proverbs repeatedly will tell us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's when you stand in awe of who he is that now all of a sudden you can have wisdom in the way you navigate the world. But when you have the awe of the Lord, when you understand who he is standing before you, all of a sudden it makes you unbribable. Yeah. yeah. In other words, if, if my yeah. ultimate treasure is the fact that this holy, unbelievable God, you know, this, this <laughs> infinite God and all of his attributes is looking upon me and loves me hmm. and he's offering me an infinite inheritance with him – this God who's that awesome is doing that to me, all of a sudden now he is my treasure mm-hmm. and I want to delight him more than anything else in the world. And so when the world comes and says, hey, if you'll be unjust for a moment, if you'll, if you'll tip the scales of justice in my favor, you know, I'll reward you with this bribe. I'll give you this. Now all of a sudden you're like, okay, do I, do I want to please the Lord? Is that my, the greatest desire of my life because I, I'm in awe of him? Or do I want your petty little trinkets that you can bribe me with? No, if you are, if you truly understand who the Lord is and you understand the, sal- the weight and the gravity of your salvation, it makes you, <laughs> when you're focused on him, it makes you unbribable. All the little petty things. I mean, it doesn't have to be someone coming to you saying, hey, I'll give you money. I mean, we're bribable when it comes to comfort. Hey, don't be obedient. Yeah. To the Lord and what yeah. He wants, and you can have comfort. Yeah. You know, get the approval of men at the expense of what He desires for you. We're very bribable, and whenever we find that our souls are bribable, it's because we don't see Him clearly. We're not in awe of who He is. Right. But when we're in awe, we're we want to be obedient. Yeah. You know, and that's what He's saying. When I walk around and I see people who are in awe of who the Lord is. Ah, oh, it's a sweet smell yeah. to me. I, I love it. Yeah. Well, and the uh, then it goes on, and as we said, it, it says he won't judge by what his eyes see and decide disputes by what his ears hear. You know, his wisdom is going to be supernatural. He's he will have the ability. He knows things that that he can't see. He knows things that he hasn't heard. He just all knowledge rests with him. 
mm-hmm. and that is something that we I mean, how many times have we listened to one of our leaders get up and give a speech and the what stands out to us as they're giving the speech is what is how much they don't seem to know about what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. Um, far from it. Uh, you know, but there are times when I listen to somebody talking. I'm like, you're just reading words off a card. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. And to have somebody as ruler who mm-hmm. who possesses knowledge so vast that he doesn't have to rely on the things that are right in front of him, but he knows everything. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's going to be uh, oh, what a relief. Uh, number mm-hmm. one, and uh, also I'm 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 just going to go out on a limb here and say that. I'm probably not going to have to like watch the video on my smartphone. Uh, in other words, this, you know, the, I think that when this ruler communicates his decisions, uh, the whole world will know. Um, mm-hmm. Go ahead with what you're going to say. Sorry. I, I, I was just going to say in that verse three where it talks about he doesn't judge by what he sees yeah. and he doesn't decide disputes by what he hears. Right. It makes me think back – and by the way, that verse where it says it, – right before that, it's his delight, which is that smell, you know. Right. So in this one verse, which I think it means to be smell because the next ones deal with senses, right? right. What he sees, what he hears. Right. So it begins with this aroma that he smells. It pleases him to smell those that fear the Lord is the idea. And so it's invoking all these senses. But what it's saying is, you know, he's he can't be fooled. You know, mm-hmm. the, one of the more, most famous stories of deception in the Bible has to do with the very birth of the nation of Israel and Jacob himself, whose name will be changed to Israel. And it happens when he is trying to steal, and he successfully steals the blessing of his brother Esau by dressing up like Esau and going in front of his blind father Isaac, and he puts hair all over his arms to, to make his father think that he's Esau, and he you know puts on Esau's clothing so that he smells like Esau, and he does all these things to fool Isaac into giving him the blessing, and Isaac's fooled. All of his senses besides one is fooled, and he gives Jacob this blessing, and what this is saying is, no, no, no. He's he can't be fooled. You're not going to fool him by putting on a show and behaving one way when your heart is a wreck. You're not going to be able to talk your way out of it because he's he his justice pierces through to the heart. He knows whether or not you fear him, and it pleases him with those who fear the Lord. But those who put on a show and just give a good speech, those who go through the motions but their hearts are far. No, no, no. He doesn't judge by that stuff. He sees your heart. And that, (laughs) he is a good judge who sees down to the very core of who you are. He is not going to be deceived. And that's why what it tells us about this judge is that it says, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity uh, for the meek of the earth. And that's, again, this idea of, of his judgments are going to be righteous and equitable. I think it's communicating to us that that's how his judgments will be perceived as well mm-hmm. um and that's the other thing that you know this that this ruler is that we're talking about a a, a kingdom an existence a world in which the decisions of the ruler are going to be perceived far and wide as being both righteous and fair um mm-hmm. and that got me thinking about for our for personal worship this week it got me thinking about the question of 
you know, how, what do we, first of all, what do we think that fairness is? And when is God fair and not fair? Um, because you don't find in the Bible, God is never described as being fair in, with that word. You know, it's like, it doesn't say the Lord is fair, but it does tell us that, the, that there's no partiality with him, that he's not, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. So it basically, it tells us that he doesn't see these divisions that we have. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female. It's like the Lord looks past all of the labels and categories that we have. Uh, for people. Um, but we start thinking about, you know, fairness. And I think there was you that said, you get what you deserve, you know, this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I then said, or everybody gets the same thing, like your little participation trophy for showing up. But neither <laughs> of those things are fairness as God defines uh, a fairness, I think. Um, because frankly, if we got what we deserved, we would be in a great deal of, of trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd be in a world of hurt. Yeah, and if you don't understand that, you you can't understand the gospel. Yeah. You know, like if if you don't – when you look at the world, the older I get, the more broken and fallen it seems. Um, it's and, always know, been it's, that it's, broken and fallen, by the way. You're just <laughs> seeing it more accurately yeah, now. You know? yeah. True. Yeah, I'm, I'm becoming the get off my lawn. You yes. Know? <laughs> yes. You know, that, that guy. Join but the crowd. You, I just noticed, you know, when I first came to faith – you know, I had these big struggles with sins, these addictions that you know that were that were kind of more notorious kind of sins. And I thought, man, when I can just get past them, then then I'll be righteous. You know, and it's like you you overcome and God breaks chains and everything else. But on this side of glory, the closer you get to the light, the more of your imperfections you get to see and you get to find, man, my heart is really selfish all the time. And when I pray or when I preach or when I do kind things, I want praise for me, not for God. You know, it's it's just you're so self – or at least I am – so self-absorbed. And I can say everyone else is because that's what the Bible says. Said, you yeah, are, I was just whether saying, you I'm realize never, it or not. I'm never self-absorbed, <laughs> Samuel. <laughs> But golly, like we really do. I I remember preaching a sermon a long time ago, and this is probably not the best illustration, but the way the Bible describes all of redemptive history, God created the world and humanity as a gift for his son, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. We were made to be a bride for his son, and We've done nothing but toxicity. We've harmed him. We've spat at him. We crucified him. We destroyed his creation. We we have done all these things to make a once beautiful Edenic place into the dumpster fire that we see on the nightly news Yeah, so often anyway. Uh, and there's wonderful parts about creation, but it's broken and it's yeah. hurting. And I use the illustration, you know, if I if I really wanted to to see my son happy and and delightful and you know to see him share his love with something that he just adored and I bought him a puppy and I thought oh, I can't wait to see the delight on his face when he gets to share his love with this puppy and enjoy relationship with this puppy and you know not long after I got this little dog for my son the dog turned and mauled him. What would be fair? Yeah. Yeah. What does that dog deserve? Yeah. You know, because that's that's all, you know, that's what we've done. We were the gift that was I mean, you really are God's gift to his son. You were supposed to be. 
and yet you've made it all about you. I've made it all about me. We've turned this world into what was supposed to be, according to God's design, into what we see in the nightly news. What do we deserve? What would be fair for God to do? Yeah. You know, because he looks at the world and says the price tag for fixing it is the death of his son. That's how <laughs> that's what a mess the world is. What would be fair? You know, what would be fair is for God to destroy us like I would destroy that dog if the dog turned and mauled my son. Sure. You know, that would be fair. But God doesn't do what's fair because if he did, we'd all be destroyed and judged and yeah. condemned. He does not do what's fair. We don't get what we deserve, thankfully. Yeah. Um, it's – anyway. It does, you know, I mean, and there's a sense in which um, fairness as God defines it, you know, we see everything that we heap on our side of the scale. If we're honest, we, we see everything that the, like we're talking about the selfishness, self-centeredness, the wickedness, the, the things that are, the things that are wrong in us are all piled on that, you know, that side of the scale. And yet, when God looks, when God does it, that verse from Proverbs that I had in related verses for study notes this week, that, you know, it's the Lord that all the weights in the bag, it's him that balances <laughs> the scales of justice. Mm-hmm. And when he puts the weight of the death of my son on the other side of that, it it can hold up and stand up against all mm-hmm. the wickedness, everything on our side. And mm-hmm. so the the fairness in God's action, yes, we don't get what we deserve, but what we do get is what Christ deserved and and didn't mm-hmm. get because of you know he because we crucified him. We, that and that's that's a balancing out. I mean, that's it. That's enough. What Jesus did was enough. Yeah, the great act of unfairness. Yes, is when the righteous one said, "I love them so much right. that I will willingly die. I will give it all to win them, to redeem them, to purchase." That's unfair. And then to see him suffer. And, you know, I've said this before, but the temptation is to go, oh, we're so bad. We're the puppy that mauled God. But God doesn't let us stay there. Right. You know, yeah, our sin <laughs> has made a mess of this world. We we should repent of it. It's not a good thing. And yet the Lord looks at us, and because of an unfairness that fell upon him, he shows just how precious we are. And he liberates us and frees us from an, e- an eternal fate in that fallen condition. Yeah. It's just he's so good. It's all one-sided goodness, mm-hmm. you know. I, I It's not like in salvation I go to him and say, all right, let's look at this deal. I've contributed this and, you know, you're, you're offering me this. Oh, okay. No, like the only thing I deserve is judgment yeah. for what I've done. And he, he gives me – salvation and love and security and peace and an eternal inheritance it's it's amazing yeah you know and i do think that that's good what you mentioned that god doesn't leave us there because i I, there's times when you know we'll kind of get you and i both we'll get on our high horses about just how (laughs) wicked the world is and how terrible everybody is and all the terrible things we see on the nightly news and i start talking about my iphone what now you know in my pocket um (laughs) that kind of thing and you know if i look back on the the you know the tapestry of my life um when i was a young man i was caught up in far more uh 
appetites. I don't know what you, how you want to call them. You know, I had my list of things that I did that God would say, you know what, this is wicked. Um, and those they didn't matter to me all that much back then. Even even mm-hmm. after becoming a Christian, I was able to shrug a lot of it off. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm a, yeah, I mean, we're all that's no big deal, that kind of thing. And as time has gone on, you know, I have through the grace of God and through just you know, a time in dealing with these things and, 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 and wrestling with them, I've, I've shed a lot of those things. Um, so I would say that if you were to judge me objectively with, on a human mm-hmm. scale, not, you know, not a divine scale, because the divine scale, it's, it's like God, God has blotted it all out. But if we're just talking about, hey, you know, Mark, you're 61, you, you've been a Christian since you were 14, what were you like at 14? I'm like, well, there was this sort of hedonistic thing from my teenage years and into mm-hmm. my 20s. And those things are not a part of my life anymore. And yet what remains, the, the, the selfishness that remains, the, the, the things that I do that I'm so frustrated at because I see so clearly now how those things are not like him. They're, they're not part of what God is trying to do with me. And I become mm-hmm. so frustrated with myself. And, and so I'm like, Lord, I just want this gone. And I need, and I know that it's not all going to be gone until we're, until the flesh isn't here, you know, until he frees us from the parts of us that hold us back and everything else. But there's a, it's like this. I did a lot stuff, worse stuff when I was a young man, but it didn't bother me very much. I don't do as many mm-hmm. bad things now, but they bother me more. So I do get on my high horse and I do start talking about the stuff like I'm Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer because I feel that way. But, but if you were to, you know, and, and so I guess it's useful to say that there is an expectation that a life spent walking with the Lord is one in which God is going to show you things to reveal parts of your heart to you that he wants you to deal with. And that, and there mm-hmm. is this process of dealing with these things and you will be able to, to gain the victory over certain things in your life. Yeah. Never perfectly, but, but the, but what comes on the other side of that is a, kind of a heightened irritation at yourself for the things that remain. So, mm-hmm. You know, I yeah, still beat. That's, that's I still there. beat the drum. You know, I'm beating the drum. I'm like, Mark, you're you're just no good. <laughs> you know, that's. No. And again, that is is part of our self centeredness too. I I do the same thing, and it, you know, for people out there who are like, man, you're you you mean you you get better and you think you're worse. <laughs> like, yeah. why, why do I want a part of that? Yeah. Here's here's the beautiful part of it, and and this is real. The more you honestly see yourself and how selfish you are. It makes you realize how much more you need mercy. Right. And it makes Christ so much more precious the longer you go. It's it's like, you know, I used to, to talk about this with my students. You know, if if you have the Lord on the one side and you imagine his holiness and his worth and his value and his all of that is just weightiness on one side and you put yourself on the other side and you say, you know what, I'm really not that bad and you kind of inch yourself closer to God and you say, you know, and God's really not that holy. He's kind of my homeboy and you inch him closer to you to where there's not much difference. You're super relatable. You're good enough. The value what, – what separates you from God is the value of your savior. That's That's how you measure it. Right. And if you think you're really good and God's not that holy, then the chasm that separates you is not that big. Jesus didn't accomplish that much. 
But if you understand in reality that God is infinitely holy, you can't track him down. He's, he's infinitely holy and you are in desperate need. Really, you are in desperate need and God knows it and he has provided, he has given his own son to measure and account for all of those things that you feel, you know, convicted by. And all of it's paid for. All of it's 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 covered by his love. It's covered by the cross. Well, now that chasm is the worth of your savior and he has filled it all. You can only genuinely enter into a rich expression of worship when you realize how massive the task was that Jesus had to redeem you. Yeah. And it 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 amplifies that love. Yeah. It it doesn't call you to walk around and wallow in guilt. No, the whole purpose of what he did was to free you from that guilt. But it's really good for you to take an honest inventory <laughs> of how much you need sure. daily mercy. Sure. Yeah. And none of us are selfish in every moment, but even in those moments where you say to yourself, I'm not being selfish. Look at what I'm doing. I, you know, I, you, the, your <laughs> moments of selflessness, all the time, I find myself caught up in this thing of I do something for someone else, some act of generosity, and yet I can't shed that part of me that feels like I expect to be noticed or thanked mm-hmm. or appreciated. You know, if there's, it's like I can't get rid of the selfishness, even in my moments of selflessness, my flesh still wants to be recognized. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and it just shows you you desperately need a savior. Yeah. You know, if if I were to compare myself and my lifestyle and what I do next to the Apostle Paul, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. would look. Like a total heathen by we, comparison, we all would. It would be a, it would it would be a mess. And I love that when you read the book of Romans, your favorite, yes, and you get to the end of chapter seven, a man that is as righteous as him, a former Pharisee, and they they were like very serious about keeping the law. He finishes going, I still see it in all my members. Sin is in everything I do. I feel it tainting, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Like. I'm like, wait, you feel that way? (laughs) You know, but then he launches into chapter 8, which is the most overjoyed, worship-filled recognition of what he has received in Christ and that that condemnation is gone and you're freed from it. So rejoice. Imagine the shackles just falling off of you every time you feel that condemnation grabbing hold. Um and then you recognize the beauty of your Savior. But it's it's helpful to take honest self-assessment of who you are, but never let it condemn you. Remember what Christ has done for you. Yeah. He starts off Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's, <sighs> that's the answer to chapter 7. Chapter 7 yep. is the most uh, chaotic <laughs> description <laughs> of the internal struggle. Um, and when he asks that question at the end where he says, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And he says, I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ and then moves right on because remember chapter divisions didn't exist. When he was writing the scroll, he moved right on to say, <laughs> there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, and that's yeah. the answer, you know, and it doesn't change how he felt because he describes how he felt. Uh, but it does change the reality 
which is God has borne all the condemnation so that there would be none mm-hmm. on us. Um, so. Amen. That word, just talking about the body of death, it made me think of in, in verse 3 where it talks about how he finds a, a pleasing aroma in mm-hmm. those who fear the yeah. Lord. It's weird that they translate that delight, but in the ancient world, just as a cultural commentary, <laughs> when it talks about delight being equated to, to a soothing aroma, you got mm-hmm. to imagine yourself walking around in the ancient world they didn't have plumbing, so oh, your yeah. sewage no, yeah, went true. out the front door. Yeah. When you cooked an animal, the carcass went out in the yard. There was no bath – like you didn't take baths like we do. There wasn't soap or shampoo. You covered your smell with oils and, and perfumes and things like that. And so if you lived in the ancient world, a pleasant smell would have been very, very few and far between. When you came across something that had a good smell – you would notice it, right? Everything about this world, even even ourselves, I was thinking about this, like left to, to just naturally not working on it, like we stink. Yeah. You know, if, if I didn't take baths and fight off the corruption and <laughs> dirt and decay and everything, I would come to stink. A- everything in this world is kind of trending towards some kind of decomposition or smell or whatever. And it's it's like he's saying, you know, I smell something that's not decomposing, that's not dirty, that hasn't lost its hygiene. You know, I smell something pleasing in those that fear the Lord. And you know, I was wondering if in that there's some kind of something communicating, like you're not dirty and nasty and smelly and dying. It's it's life. It smells nice. Uh, yeah. It's it's contrary to the way the world this world works, where everything is kind of heading toward the stink bin. Yeah. Well, I think if the pandemic didn't teach us anything, that quarantining <laughs> for for months on end without leaving the house, you know, hygiene was like, uh, a, you know, there would be there were points over the last eighteen months or so that I would come walking past and my wife would look at me and go, "Take a shower." <laughs> you know, it's like she's like, "Just Gosh. go take a shower," you know. So yeah, you know. It's, so let's. We should probably wander back to our text, or else we're going to be at an hour and a half, and we have not finished ten verses. Um, I like verse five, where it says, "Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins." Um, th- that picture again from the ancient world is they, you know, they wore these garments that were basically draped around them to a certain extent, mm-hmm. and these belts, the one around the waist and the ones wrapped around the thighs were used to essentially secure the garments to you. They were the they were essentially the foundation of the of the garments that you would wear. Um, and so what the, I think that verse is trying to communicate is that the foundation of him at his core mm-hmm. is going to be righteousness and faithfulness. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought that was a, a cool picture too that that Isaiah would say would be the belt of his waist and the belt of his loins. Yeah, I love that. And those two words like. He sets all things right. Everything is going to be made right. And that idea of faithfulness is he is relentless in keeping his promise. You can't buck him off of it. And that's at the core of who he is. Yeah. Um, it's really pretty awesome. Yeah. And one, one more comment just to keep us from making progress um, <laughs> <laughs> is in verse 4 when it says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor – and then it says he'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
When you get to the New Testament, Jesus will use those two things in the Beatitudes. It's the first Beatitude and the third. But what is it? What is it? The, it says, with righteousness, he'll judge the poor. What is Jesus's in the Beatitudes? He says, blessed are the poor, yeah. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so how does he reward the poor in righteousness? He gives them the kingdom of heaven. Right. That's, that's wild. Yeah. That's, that's way beyond fairness. Um, and then it says, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So there's the meek. Well, and the third beatitude, what do the meek receive? Yeah. It's not just mere equity like we imagine. It says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit what? The earth. The earth. Yeah. You get the whole earth. Yeah. Like, so it's saying he's going to come in righteousness t- for the poor and the meek. And what do they receive? Well, the kingdom of heaven and the earth itself. Yeah. It's, it is extravagant generosity that he is going to bring to those that are that are poor and, and poor in spirit and meek those that are humble and i don't want to back i don't want i skipped over it and i probably shouldn't have the second half of verse 4 and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked you know this transition from the world that we have now to the world that Isaiah is making a prophecy about here, the, the, what we're the, what we're hearing about, that transition is going to be a traumatic one for those mm-hmm. who are not part of his people. Um, if you're not, you know, he's going to come set things right, and for a lot of the inhabitants of the world, that's going to be a traumatic day of judgment. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to. I don't want to shy away from that. It's not you know. Yeah. It, this is not a everybody gets in. Here's your participation trophy. Um, you know the Lord has set out the mm-hmm. criteria. He's like, look, you know, everyone that calls on my name will be saved. And but if you haven't, you know, if you're not looking to Him for your salvation, then the day of judgment is coming for you. And that's the mm-hmm. reason why. That's the reason why we keep preaching the gospel because mm-hmm. the gospel is there to tell you. Here is your salvation. It is found in him. It is, it is, it is by grace. It's through faith. Apart from works, it's by believing in him, trusting in him, relying in him. He will save you. And mm-hmm. if you reject that, then there was a day coming when he will judge you. And that's not going to be a good day for you. Yeah. If you're not redeemed, if you're not going to, to be transformed into righteousness, but you insist on kingdom of self and all the wickedness and, and pride and arrogance that comes with that, the day of judgment's coming for you. And there was a one of the philosophers, authors, Miroslav Volf, who lived through uh, over in Croatia, who lived through you know genocide and his family and his village pillaged and raped and everything else. He was writing about this, and he says, "In the West, you guys don't understand how essential this is for people who've been through real pain. But the only way that my people." can grab hold of forgiveness is to believe that vengeance belongs to the Lord and either these people will be changed and redeemed which we will you know be thrilled for or they will they will receive justice but it's unthinkable for us to forgive people if we believe they will never face justice it ends the cycle of violence if we believe that justice is ultimately in God's hands and that's what the bible says vengeance yeah. belongs to the Lord yes and so Absolutely. Like I am – that's a hard verse to think about. But God is just and he will pour forth his wrath. He will not tolerate this for all eternity, yeah. thankfully. And if think, he did, we would never get the verses that are to come. Yeah. 
Well, and I also think that it's important to point out, since you brought that up, that I think there are some that say, look, I, you know, these people that have been so evil and have treated us so badly, um, I think there's a natural human tendency to want them to get the judgment part of it, not the forgiveness part. But I think mm-hmm. we have to understand that if there is somebody who has who has treated us wickedly, but then they come to repentance and and they turn to the Lord in faith and they find that redemption. It's not you can't it's not as if somebody has escaped judgment because that judgment for their sin fell on Jesus. That's right. There was justice carried out. It just was someone else who died for them. I forget where I read this or who said it, but it was somebody who was responding to, is it flippant for God to forgive great atrocities that were committed against other people? And this person who had suffered a great injustice was was writing um, that, that used to bother him until he realized that it required the death of God yeah. to atone for the wrong that was done him. God is not dealing with these injustices and travesties in a flippant way by saying, okay, you're forgiven. No, no, no. It took the death of God to make good on these injustices, yeah. um, which puts great gravity to the pain. You know, it yeah. gives it gives he- credence to what they're feeling. Right. So um, the, we have next the description of the future utopia, which um, I think is really cool. Um, verses six and seven: The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Um, the first thing I'm going to answer is, because I, I know that there should be people out there that are, that are like, you know, Mr. S- you know, snarky, literal, like me, uh, who would ask me, so is this like <laughs> literal, like actual wolves are going to lay down with actual lambs, and, and lions are going to eat straw? Is that what you're saying to me? And I'm, and I would answer that by saying, I'm not sure whether this is entirely literal or figurative. I recognize that if God wants the lions to subsist on straw, there's going to be some biological modifications required there. But I would like <laughs> to point out to you that he is God. And if that's needed, he could do it. I think the bigger picture here is that these are examples of predator and prey. Um, and what they're saying here is that in this future world, there will not be predators. There will not be prey. Uh, and I took that right to, you know, because that's how kind of, you know, extrapolation I tend to make. I just started thinking about all of the predatory people that we know about. You talked about the terrible things you see every night in the evening news. I talk about all the terrible things I see when I pull my stupid phone out of my pocket. It's all of these predatory people who prey on their fellow men and women and children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I so much yearn for a world where there will be no predators and prey. And that's what the, I think this verse is telling me. Yeah, I and and there's some trans, some of the commentators do think that it's, you know, that the animals that are being described here are um, pictures of people, you sure. know, like you know, the tribe of Benjamin was compared to a wolf. Jesus will call him, refer to himself as a lamb and a lion. and So it's it's different types of people. I think it's bigger than that. I sure hope it's bigger than that. 
um, you know, I think it's returning you to the Edenic world. Yeah, um, is kind of the idea where there is no animosity and and there's no bloodshed and the kind of fallen world where you look and say, man, there's so much tragedy everywhere, is is let down. And one of the things that I love about this is there's there's such a freedom there. You know, take a left turn and and how I'm talking about this. One of the things that that I will tell people when I'm hiring for either the church or the school. Is that the the most special part of Rio and Bethany to me is that there's a freedom to be vulnerable. We recognize that we are broken together. We 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 need a common savior. We we pick each other up when we're down. We encourage one another. And I tell them, you know, the one non-negotiable that will get you out of here in a hurry is if you're somebody who loves to gossip and tear others down because what that forces humanity to do is to recognize I'm not safe and put on a mask again and yeah. never open themselves up to be vulnerable, to seek healing for wounds that they have or scars that they have. And and so it, it becomes a world where everybody's constantly spooked. You're waiting for the next injury. You're waiting for the next attack. You're always on guard. You can never, ever open up, be vulnerable, be comfortable, be authentic and we live in a world of loneliness and insecurity and depression and everything else because of it. And this is saying you can now be vulnerable. There is no – like you said, there's no predators anymore. There's no one who's going to come at you when you're relaxed. The lamb can lay down with the wolf. Can you imagine? Right. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the goat doesn't have to sprint and scurry away from the leopard. The little kid, I mean for Pete's sake, the little kid, the baby – Next to, if you saw a baby next to a snake right now, you would panic and your heart would explode. You'd be racing to, no, all of that is going to be fixed. There's not going to be any more of of this knee jerk, you know, right. anticipation of of things going wrong. There yeah. will be peace. Ah, man, that sounds nice. A world without predators. Yeah, that does sound nice. Uh, and you mentioned the child and the snake. That's verses eight and nine. The nursing child. Uh, shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, you know nursing child is a, it obviously is, is an infant. The weaned child, like a toddler. So you're thinking of young, innocent, vulnerable children, and they are playing the cobra, the yeah. adder, in the <laughs> vicinity of venomous Serpents, venomous snakes. Yeah. And up above that in six, you got the little child who's leading the wolf, the lamb, the leopard, the yeah. lion, the calf. I mean, he's leading these things. So it keeps going back to that. These kids, little children, are going to be leading all these very dangerous animals. Yeah. I thought it was interesting uh, in verse eight that it used this picture of these venomous snakes and saying that the child was safe from the venomous snake. I, I sort of felt like, and I mentioned this in, in the study notes this week, I sort of felt like that was maybe a callback to the garden, a callback to Genesis 3, where we're told that the serpent is the most cunning, uh, crafty, devious of God's grace. And again, we've had this conversation when we talked about Genesis 3. Was it an actual snake, you know, or was it somebody who was serpentine in their behavior? Uh, you know, what what really was that? The fact is, the Bible says a serpent, um, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know. And here it's talking about a cobra and an adder, which are serpents, which are snakes. 
Um, snakes are not evil. They are just animals <laughs> doing what animals do. So for me, at least, it's this word picture of connecting back to Genesis 3 and saying that there will be no more harm even for the innocent ones, even for the ones that that don't know how to defend themselves. They are safe from the serpent because no one will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. It's a world not just free of predators, but it's a world that is free of danger. It's a world that is free of hurt. It's a world that is free of deception and cunning. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, and I call, I used the U word in our study notes this week. It is utopia. This is a utopia. It sounds really, really nice. And I think one of the reasons why. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit of an understatement. I'm just saying, you know, like, yeah. I want to go to there. Yeah, I want to go there now, please. So, but another thing is like when you think of somebody who deals with these kinds of animals, they have to be skilled. You know, they have sure. to be sure. trained, and it's, uh-huh. it's saying no, no, no. Just the the weakest among you, the most unassuming, the least educated. Like, there's no danger. You don't need to be trained. It's the world is now going to be in harmony with one another. And one of the other things that I wonder if this is hinting at, because this is this is nodding toward an Edenic world. Sure. Yeah. Is you know now all of a sudden humanity deals with the serpent and there's no harm that comes. The first the fall happened when Adam you know allowed the serpent to play havoc. You know whether you know Satan in the form of a serpent and and everything unraveled. But now you have even the child. So one without even authority in the home is the idea. Right who deals with the serpent and there is no danger of another fall. It is not going to happen again. You are utterly safe and secure. This utopia is not fading. The serpent poses no risk anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the uh, verse 9, they'll not hurt or destroy uh, in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I, when I first, the first time I read that, I thought, huh, what, you know, what waters and sea, I don't know. But if you think about the sea as, you know, as what it is, basically, it's a giant receptacle into which there is water. <laughs> it's like the sea is uh-huh. this really deep spot in between the high places. Uh, it just happens to be full of water. If you took all the water away, um, it maybe wouldn't be the Atlantic Ocean anymore, but it would be a, a, an ocean-sized receptacle anyway. Uh, so when you think about the fact of how exactly does the water cover the sea, and the answer is that it penetrates everything. It covers even the deepest trench, the, the, the most labyrinthian cave. It gets into every crack and orifice, every, every you know, uh, coral rock that's all uh, full of holes, all filled with water. And I think that what we're being told here is that this that the reason this is going to be a utopia where a child, even the weakest and most innocent among you, will not be harmed by the serpent, where a child will be able to lead even these dangerous predators, where it will be this kind of world that is so safe, so serene, so peaceful, is because it will be filled to the uttermost. It will everything, everywhere, you there's gonna be no place that you will not have the knowledge of the Lord. No crack in the rock, no cave in the ground, no place that you will be able to go where you will not have the knowledge of the Lord. That's going to be yeah. the thing that transforms the world. 
And that is a, that gets back to where we started, right? Where it talks about you know he delights, he, he finds a soothing aroma, mm-hmm. and and those who have the fear of the Lord, those who look at him with awe, you know, because when you see the Lord as He is, you're unbribable. You recognize what treasure you have, and what does it say? All this utopia comes when the earth is filled with the knowledge of who He is. When you finally see Him for who He is. Everything changes. You don't want all the the petty things that lead to destruction. It's going to be a radically, radically different existence when you realize and see him for who he is. Uh, Verse 10 says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal uh, for the peoples. That's that word you talk about raising up a banner. That's the idea that this Mm -hmm. root of Jesse will be a banner. Um, I don't know why they did it signal here, but it's the same idea. Stand as a banner mm-hmm. for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Um, just this idea that this ruler, this root of Jesse, who is Jesus, I mean, we've been, mm-hmm. you know, is being named as the root of Jesse. Uh, that it is, we're talking about Jesus here. It's a prophecy of Jesus. Um, he will be a banner to uh, the peoples of, of all the nations, you know, the entire world. It says, Uh, Of him they will inquire, which means they're going to turn to him for their salvation. Um, What we're describing here is the end of divisions based on, you know, nation and uh, race and people. It's like it's there are going to be his people, and that's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and there is a profound truth. That is in a couple of them that are in verse 10 that I came across when I was preparing for this. And the one is, if you remember in verse 1, he's called a shoot of Jesse, right? Or from the stump of Jesse, a shoot comes. Right. And so in that instance, well, the shoot comes after the stump. So it's saying he's going to be a descendant of Jesse because he's a shoot from the stump of Jesse. But then in verse 10, he's called the root of Jesse. And uh-huh. it's like, well, wait a minute. A root, a root comes before of the stump. And so a root would be an ancestor, a shoot would be a descendant. Which is it? Does he come before or does he come after? Is he a son or is he a father? And wait, the answer wait, is Wait a minute. Lieutenant Dan has the answer. Maybe it's both. Yeah. yeah it's yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know how Jesus will say that controversial statement where he says before Abraham was I am. I am. Yeah. Which means, you know, I, I was before Abraham, and yet here I am in the flesh after Abraham. I'm both the father and the son. And this, you find out, okay, he came before Jesse, and he will come after Jesse. It's a nod to who he is. He's God. Um, and he will stand as a signal, which is literally a banner. And in the New Testament, it's, it's a standard, like you would hold a pole up with your colors, you know, your flag or whatever – banner that would make all the soldiers recognize and come to you. But it's he doesn't hold up a flag, notice. Mm-hmm. He doesn't lift up, you know, national colors, stars or stripes, you know, nothing like that. He himself will stand as the standard, as the banner for all peoples, and they will come to him. Not the symbol, they will come to him. And there's only one time in the New Testament where Jesus uses the language about that standard, and it's in right before the most famous verse in all the New Testament. But he's he's talking to Nicodemus at night, and Nicodemus is trying to understand who he is. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent on a standard, you know, the, in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 21, all the people are dying from serpent bites, and God gives Moses this, this instruction. He says, make a serpent 
a bronze serpent and put it on a standard. It's kind of like the medical symbol and hold it up. And everybody who looks at the serpent will be healed. And then Jesus, and they are, and then Jesus in the New Testament says the salvation of the world is going to be like that. I have to be lifted up like that. And he is on the cross. And he compares himself to a serpent. Why? Because Jesus on the cross, when he is lifted up on the standard, literally the cross, he will take all the sin of all the world. He will become the most corrupt thing, corrupt person with all the sin of all the world absorbed into himself that the world has ever seen. And God will pour forth wrath upon him. And everybody who looks to him, Christ on a standard, paying the penalty of our sin, will be healed. And that's the idea. You know, the root of Jesse is going to become the standard for all peoples, lifted up, and every nation will come to him and his resting place is glorious. It makes me wonder if the in the sovereignty of God the Spirit has inspired all of this to make us think, why would he say that he is going to be this banner lifted up, this this symbol that's lifted up. The only time Jesus talks about himself being lifted up like that, he's talking about the cross. Yeah. And nations will rally to him. Yeah. That's that's where he wins the hearts of the world when yeah. he gives his life for us. It's yeah. Incredible. Well, that's a good word. Um, and it's one that we're going to have to end on. Uh, because the clock on the wall says we've talked too long. We're using up all the hard drive space here today. So <laughs> Shocking. Uh, program note for you all. Uh, this uh, this is – I'm going to be taking a couple of weeks off. Uh, we, the church is normally closed between Christmas and New Year. But uh, next week and the week after, uh, my wife and I are going to be up in Gainesville, Florida, uh, as we're coming together for the wedding of our son who's getting married to a wonderful young woman, and uh, we're very excited about all of that. They're also, he and his fiance are graduating from college on one day, on Saturday the 18th, and on Sunday the 19th, they're getting married. That's going to be a busy weekend. <laughs> uh, and of course, because, you know, because it's a righteous family, it's a righteous people, they're both gators, you know, just mentioning. That's right. That's right. They're both graduating from the University of Florida. Um, but uh, so what you have to look forward to over the next couple of weeks, we've, Sam and I have talked about this and gone back and forth to try to figure out what we could do uh, rather than just leaving you with no content. Uh, before I did this podcast, my first job working at the church was to take the sermons from our senior pastor, Tom Hendricks, that he preached on Sunday mornings, and to create a radio show based on those sermons. It was called Hope with Tom Hendricks, uh, and it was 30 minutes long. Um, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back through the archives of Hope with Tom Hendricks and look for some Advent-themed episodes of that. Uh, and then I'll record a little intro and an exit just basically to remind people that, yes, this is still out of water, but you're having a flashback to Hope with Tom Hendricks. Uh, and so hopefully you guys will enjoy that over the Christmas season, uh, but then we'll be back uh, after the first of the year with some fresh uh, out of water episodes again but so for after this episode for the next few weeks uh, i hope that you enjoy it i the uh, i think that i i used to say that i had one of the greatest jobs in the world because everybody else got to hear tom preach his sermons once on sunday mornings i got to listen to them eight nine ten twelve times while i was very carefully making notes as to what could be cut out to make time 
I get to the point where I could preach most of Tom's sermons for him. I, I, I it's like <laughs> that's what I did is I sat around and listened to his sermons carefully throughout the if week. If you had to edit my sermons down, you would have quit. <laughs> you you are doing much better. I'm going to just say this: you your last sermon was like. 30 minutes or something like that on Sunday morning a couple right. of weeks ago. You nice. were the guy that at one point had the all-time record for sermons at our church. You hit 50. Oh, I still have that. Yeah. I still have it. You hit 53 or 56 minutes or something one week, like a full hour. And, you know, we were. I was like, Sam, you went 56 minutes. He goes, that's about how long our class lasts. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah, I get that. The old school teacher and you coming out. But uh, That's right. So anyways. My natural timer. Some special episodes of Out of Water over the next couple of weeks. You'll hear, you'll actually hear some episodes of Hope with Tom Hendricks uh, there to, to hold you over until uh, we come back after my vacation and after our 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 church vacation. Everybody everybody gets off between Christmas and New Year's, uh, and then we'll come back with some fresh episodes after that. We do hope that you've enjoyed your time with us. If you'd like to correspond with us, uh, we've got our inbox is always open. You can send us email. It's out of water at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O Vista church.com uh, that's also where you can find all the back episodes of the out of water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash out of water uh, and you can find us on apple podcasts on google podcasts and on spotify uh, we'll be back after the first of the year with some more uh, fresh episodes but uh, in the meantime wishing you a very very blessed christmas if you're in town and you don't have a church to attend on christmas eve please come join us at rio it's a wonderful service 4 and 6 p.m on christmas eve a candlelight service it is always magnificent the music is wonderful the 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 message will be wonderful it's going to be a really really cool evening so if you don't have a church home and you're in the greater fort Lauderdale, Broward County area, please consider coming to our Christmas Eve service at Rio Vista Community Church. You can find directions to the church on our website at riovistachurch.com. But we hope that you have a very blessed Christmas and a happy new year. And then we will see you after the first of the year with more Out of Water. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water. Out of Water.